This week on Out of the Air features fantastic realist artist George Underwood, whose work has been featured on hundreds of fantasy, horror, science fiction book covers, along with CD and LP album covers. Next, photographer Sharon Hoogstraten, whose portrait celebrates Potawatomi tribal members in traditional dress opening August 7th at the Depot. Our spotlight is on Canterbury Theatre's Scotland Road, running one weekend only August 3rd through 5th. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art, and show the world your heart. Welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, and WDSO 88.3 FM. Our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at WVLP.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. I'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight from the Canterbury Summer Theater. And they've had a great season all this summer. We'll talk a little bit about that. Ray Scott Crawford is the artistic director. So uh, he's going to tell us about what's going on. And in the final show that they have coming up is called Scotland Road. Ray Scott, welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight. Well, it's great uh-huh. to be here. Yeah, I, 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 Hi, Esther. It's good to see you, too. I was with you earlier in the year. Um, in the summer. It's great to see you, Ray Scott. Well, you just finished kind of yeah, a fun show uh, called the Honky Talk Angels uh, that closed on the 29th. But tell us a little bit about that. Uh, that's now that was like a musical review, really. It was. It was. It's a, a tribute to all of the uh, the, the the grand women of uh, country music. So you know, Dolly Parton and and uh, Shania Twain. You name it. Anyone you can think of. And it's a, uh, a collection of all the songs that they made famous, but it's actually put into a story. So it's, it's a little more of a traditional uh, musical in that the uh, three girls from three different walks of life um, are, are cast to the wind, so to speak, meet up with each other and decide they're going to Nashville to become stars. And um, that's the first act. And the second act, they get their dream. They, they actually put on a show at at Honky Tonk Heaven in Nashville. So it, it's, uh, it's quite a show. It's Ray fun. Scott, the, um, the preview that you do on Saturdays completely just stopped the whole farmer's market, and they all turned oh. to watch. It was so, this, this season of previews, oh my gosh, so fabulous. Thank you so much. 
Well, that's great to hear. I'm glad that we, we are out there and, and have the opportunity to promote the shows. And I think uh, a lot of people who are there at the farmer's market don't know about the Canterbury. And I think that awakens, uh, awakens them a little bit to the talent that we have you know, brought to town to, to, to entertain. Yeah, phenomenal talent this year. Like the harmonies are, are uh, you know, it's sad you missed them if you didn't get to see Honky Tonk because the harmonies were great. Can attest to that. And, and Canterbury's been there for a long time. It's doing things uh, and everything. It's just been a mainstay there in Michigan City. But you have another show coming up for just one weekend only. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. It's, it's called Scotland Road. And it is, that's a reference to a part of the Titanic that, that went from one end of the steerage, the third class, to the other end. And it is a mystery, thriller, psychological drama about a woman who is found on an iceberg in the early 90s. And she only says one word, and that's Titanic. Um, well, the descendant of John Jacob Astor, who, of course, died on the um, Titanic, his, his child was uh, just unborn at that time, uh, survived with the mom, with the mother, and his great-grandson, John Jacob Astor, whatever number, uh, brings that woman into a, a an observatory, sort of a, you know, makeshift sanatorium space to, he's going to disprove her. That's his goal, is to disprove her, because she's getting a lot of attention. And he hires uh, a professional uh, psychologist to, you know, see to her needs, her medical needs, and, and what have you. And uh, it's, the show is about the unraveling of the story, but what the what the show goes through and takes us through is everyone's unraveled. There's also the last surviving before her um, uh, survivor of the Titanic is brought in to question her too. So it's really a it's it's an interesting look at that 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 uh, legend, uh, for want of a better word, and the, the mystique and the mystery behind the, the Titanic sinking. And, you know, there's a connection to Michigan City. I've learned this, that one of the survivors was actually on her way to Michigan City, and uh, she was after she survived. She was detained in uh, New York for a little while, but within a month, she was in Michigan City for her wedding, and she married and lived in Michigan City for a number of years, a couple of decades, and then she uh, eventually moved on to Dearborn, Michigan, where she's buried now. But she lived, her address was 300-something Washington, which we know Esther is just up the road from, from it us. It is. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting tie-in. Yeah, I had never heard that. That is that is phenomenal. Hey, Ray yeah. Scott, I have a, a question. Can you talk about the process of discovery of plays, especially when they are not commonly known like this one? Well, uh, this one is chosen um, by Bossier Parish Community College. I bring the troupe from my college where I teach up in the summertime at the end of the summer to do the last show of our season. They get a professional uh, opportunity, and um, the Canterbury gets a rest. The resident company um, at, at this airing will be gone the one that was there all summer. This is a new group of people that come in to do this show. We've done this for 18, 19 years. Uh, so this particular show is is the last show of the Bossier Parish Community College's year's season. So it's sort of selected, you know, early on. We'll, we'll select it soon. Then after that, we, uh, David Graham, who is the Associate Artistic Director, and I get together with uh, members of the board, and we throw out... Um, 
shows that we think we want to consider based upon the size, scope, and cost. Uh, we, we can only use a company of about, you know, maximum six, seven, eight actors. And uh, so we have to find shows that fit that and that we think we can cast. Also, that will bring something that we think our audiences will enjoy. We usually try to do a drama, uh, maybe a mystery, a comedy, some, you know, and we always have at least three musicals of some sort. Well, we only have a few moments left. Tell us uh, about Scotland Road, dates, times. August 3rd and 4th at 7 o'clock, August 5th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a matinee. That's a Saturday matinee. Uh, the number of the theater is 219-874-4269. You can go to canterburytheater.org to purchase tickets as well. That's Artistic Director Ray Scott Crawford, Canterbury Theater, Scotland Road, August 3rd through the 5th. Thank you for coming on Art in the Air Spotlight. Yeah, brilliant. Thank, Thank you, Ray you. Scott. And a Spotlight Extra, the Depot Museum and Gallery, in conjunction with Memorial Opera House, presents Film Fest at the Crossroads, featuring films about Northwest Indiana, August 10th at 6 p.m. Information can be found at memorialoperahouse.com. Art on the Air Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. This past week, we lost one of the greatest interpreters of the great American songbook, whose 80-year career received worldwide accolades including 19 Grammy Awards, one as recent as 2022 for Best Traditional Pop Album, and garnered fans that spanned the generations. Art on the Air celebrates the life and legacy of Tony Bennett, who quietly passed away this past week. He was 96. I left my heart in San Francisco High on a hill It calls to me You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. We have the pleasure of welcoming George Underwood to Art on the Air. George has been immersed in the arts, both visual and musical, from a young age. A gifted designer, illustrator, and painter, his work graces hundreds of advertisements, portraits, drawings, book, and album covers, both LPs and CDs, including albums for T-Rex, The Driven, Tom Paxton, Skip James, and Hunky Dory Bowie. His paintings put to use his imagination as he invents the fantastical mythic environments his people inhabit. George's paintings are in many private art collections. His most recent solo exhibit has just completed its run. Aloha and welcome, George. Thank you. It's so good to see you. Hello, Esther. Yeah, nice to see you too. Well, George, how we always like to start our interviews is giving our audience a chance to get to know you, uh, talk about your origin story and everything like where you grew up and all your early art influences as we get into the, you know, discovering more about you. How we'd like to say is how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, um, I was born in 1947 and that makes me an old geezer now, but um, well, I was born up in a place called Bromley in uh, southeast London. Uh, well, it's actually in Kent, but, uh, you know, it's on the borders of London. And um, when I was about 10 years old, my mum and dad went to Spain for the, when Spain uh, started becoming a, a, a holiday destination. And we were in Barcelona, and I saw um, 
I saw a painting uh, etching uh, by Salvador Dali, and that really left an impression on me. I was always, I was always drawing anyway, but uh, that was, my, I would say, my, my, my first sort of influence and stroke impression that, that, that sort of started me thinking, to say, in a more esoterical way than, you know, than, than I was before. Anyway, that's an early start. Then um, I went to art school and um, didn't learn much there, actually, because I was always playing in a band. Doing music, so I, didn't, I ended up uh, sort of, you know. Well, in fact, the, the course I was doing was a graphic design course anyway, so I, I wasn't really that keen on it. And I used to paint for myself anyway uh, on the side, you know, doing bits and pieces. And um, I went to see an, uh, I went to see a book. Uh, well, I went, I went to see an artist's agent first of all, and then they uh, they took some of my work to a publishers and I got a couple of book covers straight away, which was pretty good going, really, for a you know, sort of eight, 18 year old. And so I, what was in what was in that portfolio, George? Was it drawings? Was it paintings? What did you show them? Um, it's a mixture, really, mostly a, a lot of graphics and things which I've been, you know, college uh, things which which I, I wasn't necessarily that keen on. But, but what I had at the back was my own drawings. And I said to the guy, I said, I've got some stuff here, you might be interested. And I, and I opened them up and he, and he went, oh, oh can, can, uh, I need to show this to someone. And they, those were my more sort of um, no, weird drawings, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want for a bit of a word. I, I think uh, everyone... Thoughts of hey, what's going on in your head? You know, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like a very strange right. I was doing. And I ended up, these two book covers were um, one was called uh, was Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, it, was, it was actually uh, short stories, uh, horror stories called uh, A Premature Burial and The Cold Embrace. And, and, they were, and they were the first two things I ever did. Anyway, later on, when I, uh, uh, I, I started doing a bit more. But it was mostly commercial work because I couldn't. You couldn't make money in those days. I I didn't sort of doing fine art because I wasn't ready for fine art anyway. I didn't have enough paintings to go to a gallery, but I I was trying my des- desperately to one day do that. So um, you know, I had to make some money. So I, I did lots of book covers and record sleeves and things like that. But um, the um, the time came in about 1971 when I, I I decided to go from acrylics and watercolors and drawings and to oil painting, and that was when I sort of found a completely different medium which suited my style and I and I um I, you know I immediately found a, a kindred spirit in that in in that medium, and I've been painting oils ever since and um. um so the, the first things, were they just like pen and ink drawings or? Oh, before it, I did oils, really. Yeah, before oil. Yeah, and no, I used to do, what I used to do is Like pencil, pastel? Pencil or drawings. Pencil. I mean, like the first album cover, I, it was my people were fair and had sky in their hair, but now they're content to wear stars on their brow. That's a title, long, one of the longest titles in, in music history, I think, by um, Tyrannosaurus Rex, they were called then. They shortened it down to T-Rex later on, Mark Boland being the main uh, singer of that. You may have heard of them. And yeah. um, I, uh, I I did an album sleeve for them, 
and that was based on Gustave Doré uh, etchings and prints I had. I, I used those as my inspiration, um, and that was pencil drawing, but then I put Indian inks, transparent inks on top. So I'd fix the pencil drawings, then put in inks on top. So, I, you know, it, 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 it seemed to work okay. But um, Did they give you any direction other than the title of the album? Were you, you given, uh, like, well, complete artistic license? Well, when I <laughs> uh, – David Bowie actually was, was instigated the – he said, he said uh, he rang me up and said, I've got a friend who's got this album coming out, you, you know, and I think you'd be good for the sleeve. So I went up to town and met, met um, David with Mark, and Mark's girlfriend and Tony Visconti, the, the producer, sat in Tony's flat. And I could see that Mark was a it was very kind of cosmic man. It was all very, uh, very cosmic. <laughs> and I could see that he was into Tolkien and well, he liked William Blake. So I was trying to figure out what, what, what made him tick, you know. And it wasn't that easy. But when I got home, I realised that, that that Gustav Doré book I had, which was full of, um, you know, Dante's Inferno and, uh, and Milton's Paradise Lost and all that. It's exactly the sort of feel that I think he wanted for the album cover. So that worked all right, you know. And I went on to do other album covers after that. And um, so, uh, yeah, a, a world of advertising and, and, and commercial art for a while. And then I, um, uh, all the time I was doing that, I was painting for myself. So I was building up um, a body of work that I could show, as I said before, go to a gallery and say, look, you know, will you take me on? And um, the gallery that took me on was a gallery called the Portland Gallery. They were quite well known in London. And um, they had some really good artists and I felt very happy to, to be with them. What was that first collection, George? Um, How do you develop the style you have now? Or was that mostly portraits? Yeah, was, or um I, I had some um, mythological creatures in there. I had um, all sorts of things, really, yeah. And I tend to do a lot of faces, portraits, yeah, and, and they're usually made up uh, rather than, you know, people that exist. And um, so that, um, that was good. I, I, I had two or three uh, exhibitions with them and slowly built my name up, you know, and... Uh, uh, then the that, that that the gallery folded, and I I went. Well, it's still around. They're called the Portal Painters now, but it's only online. Uh, I went to another gallery in the Cotswolds, which is a lovely. It's it's um, you may have heard of it in in, in England, and yes. uh, it's called the Foss Gallery. And I've been with them for quite a few years now, and I have a one man show with them every other year, and. Um, I think you mentioned earlier, it has had, had, it's just finished my show, in fact, and uh, a lot of work, and I've sold quite a lot, which is nice. Yeah. I've got, I've got a bit of a fan club up there, I think. People that uh, have bought more than one of my paintings, you know, so that's that's cool. You know, in yeah, your... Uh, Biography. You described uh, the school as like a uh, fantastic realism, and tell us a well. Describe that, since unfortunately this is radio, you can't really. But describe that, and then how that style has evolved. Uh, wow. Work. I, I see that you know, one time you used models, and now you just work from your imagination. So tell us about that process. Yeah. Well, I think that's. I was talking about um, 
the school of Viennese school of fantastic realism, yeah, which was big influence on me when I uh, uh, I was painting. Uh, some uh, it was the head of, the, uh, of that school was Ernst Fuchs, who is unfortunately not with us anymore, but he had a style of painting which was very much traditional in the Renaissance, traditional classical way of painting, which uh, a lot of the, those uh, skills have been lost now over the years, you see. And I, I kind of like that feel that it was modern, contemporary, but in an old-fashioned way, if you know what I mean. I can't explain exactly right, but the, 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 the fantasy side of it was reminiscent of me, of, of Hieronymus Bosch and, and those Bruegel and those sort of guys who were doing fantastical things, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, looks like they've been on drugs or something. You know? And I, I just thought, wow, that's, that's the sort of thing I'd love to be able to do that. So, you know, those... So you're making drawings before you do the painting, I'm assuming. Well, I have an idea. And I'd scribble it down on a bit of paper, on, on a sketchbook. I've got hundreds of sketchbooks full of, you know, things that come out of my head. Just, just. So do you, do you have a place where you feel most creative? Like, are you strolling and you have your sketchbook with you? Or do you, is there a certain place in the house that, yeah. you know, things originate? Do you know, funny enough, one of the places I get quite a few, I know it sounds crazy, but... Is on the train up to London. When I, it takes from where I live now. It takes me about an hour and ten minutes on the train. It stops at lots of stations. It's a really boring journey, really. <laughs> and uh, so I get my sketchbook out, and you know, sometimes that seems to work. Uh, I have other places at home here which I, I, I like to sit and, and, and scribble, you know, and, and, and draw. Um, sometimes I can go quite a long time without getting any decent ideas. And then suddenly, you know, they'll come up, you know, one after the other. It's just a random thing, really. Can't put my finger on it. And uh, sometimes they I, I look back at old ones that I did years ago, thinking that, hey, that's not so bad after all. I think, I, you know, I might, I might yeah. uh, try that and see what happens. Yeah. Has your palette pretty much always um, been the same? It's, it's, and that's what, you know, it adds to the, the yeah, well, medieval... I, Quality. Yeah, yeah, it has changed slightly over years. I think my earth colours, which I use quite a lot of them, I've gone away from bright, bright colours. I must admit, I'm not, I'm not uh, a colourist in that sense. I don't, I don't have lots of colours going on in my paintings. I tend to have a limited palette. Uh, I know, but you do a lot with that palette. I mean, well, the subtleness is just gorgeous. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, if you look at uh, Renaissance artists, didn't have a very wide palette. They didn't have very many, many colors. And I think um, you, 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 when a color does come into a painting and, and it zings out, then that's lovely. You know, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not against bright colors. It's just that sometimes um, a painting just needs one bit of colour and then suddenly that's enough you know you don't need too much in my opinion anyway I'm, 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 I've had people criticise oh don't like your work it's not very, very colourful is it well I'm sorry you know that's what well, it's, it's a very muted colour there's muted, plenty of yeah. colour in it you know like it adds a wonderful 
misty sort of quality. I love that it's, you know, your paintings take the improbable, but the way you've rendered them, it makes it very probable. So yes, you know, you're looking at something fantastical, but it it's like not in the realm of, um, oh, I don't even know how to phrase it. It's, well, it's not in... You're all the right things, Lester. Yeah. all the right things, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I really am so attracted to the work. It's really oh, thank you. thought-provoking. And, you know, I often wonder, because they are from your imagination, these creatures, like these beasts that you've created, they're, I don't know, they're just wonderful. You know, I, I might have come to the end of doing those because I kind of feel as though I've done enough of those now. I might, you know, I might move on to do something else because although they're fun to do, I, I think I, I, I like to change every so often and do something to have. I, I'm now thinking of a theme which I want to work on, you know, which will, will be uh, for my next show, you know, and I'm trying to think, work one out. I've done, I've done themes like people submerged in water, and I've done themes of, um, you know, lots of heads and faces. And so I'm, I'm, I'm searching now for something to hook onto. I can't explain it, but, you know, a little, a little something. Maybe it might be architectural even, you know. Yeah. Spaces in it. I don't know. I, I Time to take a train ride to London, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> something we've explored with all of our guests is how COVID impacted you. For some, it's been a very positive, creative time, and other times it's been well, a difficult time. They, they kind of shut down. So tell us how that influenced your uh -huh. work and your even personal life. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that one before. I think when it came along, COVID, I was very lucky. I mean, I, I live in a detached house in the countryside with my wife. So we don't have, you know, lots of things to worry about too much, apart from the cat and the dog. But what I mean is uh, we had a lot of help from people delivering groceries to us. We didn't have any problem about that. We had... Um, you know, I'm one of the few people and my wife that, that never got COVID. Everyone I know got it. Even my, my kids got it. But we we we, uh, we, we managed to uh, bypass us. And um, I was quite happy being isolated. To the truth, I quite liked it. It's nice to uh, be able to. I, I was painting, you know, and, and, and I didn't really have a problem. Yeah, I'm lucky. yeah, that's done in isolation generally anyway, and so yeah. it just really... It's, it's, it's a very singular thing, yeah, yeah, and, and also the only person who sees my paintings first is my wife, and she's m my best critic, I would suggest. Um, she's always... Uh, when I, when I've, I, she comes up to my studio and, and I say, you know, what do you think? And I can tell straight away that there's something... That, bothering her about the painting and I'm like oh, what is it and she'll point something out to me which I didn't see you know uh, or I've changed very easily you know it, it, sometimes it's uh, it's just a little thing. and uh, you know uh, it, it, I'm very lucky to have her <laughs> she, she's very helpful and uh, without her it really would be very uh, insular you know um, but um, I think art always you know, it, it is a one-on-one -on -one thing. You can't really, you can't really share it much with it. I find that uh, my concentration when I'm painting is just so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's quite intense. So I, I don't really, 
you know, I can work for two or three hours nonstop without without any interruptions, and it's not. And some paintings, I'm sure, flow easier. Like some, you worry over a lot longer than others. Definitely. And, yeah. 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 No, you're right. And uh, sometimes I get a bit too much into detail. I mean, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of detail. I mean, like really fine brushes, etc. I'm trying to loosen up a bit from that, and uh, my detail work. And also, it's that old question: When is the painting finished? <laughs> and <laughs> uh, stop now stop <laughs> because sometimes I think you can overwork things yeah. and you were adding patterns on patterns I mean I love I love the detail in the you know you're talking about getting away from detail but the lips you know the lips that you create are just so finely detailed as well as the eyes you know yeah faces I get drawn into and I try and think well Without looking at any reference, I want that person to come alive, yeah. And, uh, so that's why I try and put as much detail as I can in the faces, yeah. The patterns in the hair and the armour and just... Well, armour is another thing, a uh, theme that I was onto for quite a long time. And uh, I still like armour. I, I look at Velasquez paintings and there's a black armour, gold, okay, oh, you know. And, and, and I, in the National Gallery in London, I'm, I'm very uh, lucky to have... Amazing paintings to look at if everyone's, you know, in London and want to kill. If I want to sell and pop into the National Gallery for five minutes, it's usually about an hour and a half by, by the time I come out, <laughs> uh, absorbed by all the amazing paintings in there. Georgia, is there something that you want to do differently? And, you know, you've established this huge body of work that's really uh, striking, but uh, often a new direction yet. You know, is there something you want to explore that way? When I'm painting, things go through my head, you know, about. Am I going around the right direction? Am I, should I be doing something differently? And um, when I look at, around it and I see a lot of artists who I'm not so keen on, but they're doing incredibly well. <laughs> I don't want to name names, because, but what I mean is there's a skill to what I do, I think, which I don't find... You know, I'm not ashamed of saying that. You know, I think I'm quite good at it now. I've got it. I've got it sort of sussed. But I'm not mad on the slapdash. And you know, I'm kind of decided that I'm not going to go down that direction because I, I, I'm going to stick to what I do. But I mean, I'm going to try it and get better ideas. Really, that's that's. You know, try try and get some ideas which I've never, I, I don't think people someone has ever done before. Just completely, you know, something that's going to come along one day, and I'm going to say yes. You know, that's 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 great. Yeah, Yeah, because ultimately, you know, we do it to satisfy ourselves, and it's a bonus if somebody else likes it. You know, I've got to aim high. You see, I'm trying to aim really high, and uh, doesn't always work. You know, you can't always get there. But in my mind's eye, I've got this painting in my head that is going to, you know, blow people's minds. You know. You got to think like that sometimes. You? you paint, don't you, Esther? Yeah. I, you know, I do a bit, yeah. but it's not my it's not my first discipline necessarily. Uh-huh. I just started with oils right before, maybe a year before the pandemic, maybe not oh, even I, quite I, a I'm year. So I, I'm quite new to oils. Well, I think they're amazing, personally. Do you have any advice for people like Esther who just started with oils? Uh, we're just going to wrap up here in about a minute and a half, but tell us about maybe what advice you give for someone maybe transitioning from a different uh, painting like acrylics and other well, things. The thing about 
painting and creating, whether it be oils or sculpture or whatever, you know, um, you've got to do it for yourself. I think Esther mentioned that earlier. The the thing about um, the slippery path is being an artisan, you know, and doing it for someone else. That is the slippery slope to, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's not very satisfying to do something that someone else likes because I end up not liking it myself so much. I'll explain that very easily, but do you, just, do you, do you get what my drift? Sure, sure. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't explain it very well, but, you, you know, I, I would suggest to anyone that's, you know, going down the creative route, just stick to your guns. Don't break all the rules. You know, there's no rules that can't be broken as long as you do them on your terms. That's what I always suggest to do. Yeah, follow that instinct. <laughs> follow that instinct, yeah, yeah. Well, real quickly, we got to wrap up here. Uh, tell us how people can see your work on the internet and maybe if you have any upcoming exhibits uh, like in, the, sure. in August and in the fall. Right. Uh, well, my uh, my son updates my website, uh, so I'm going to put some new stuff up for me. It's georgeunderwood.com. I don't have, as I said, just finished a, sh- a one-man show. We've had 34 paintings in it, so I've been quite busy. And uh, I don't have a an, another one-man show view yet, but um, if you go onto my website, I will keep you posted. That sounds yeah. great. We appreciate you coming on Art in the Air. That's George Underwood all the way from England. You can find him at uh, georgeunderwood.com, also available on Facebook. And I'm sure if you do a Google search, you'll find him come up. George, thank you so much for sharing your art and your artistry on Art on the Air. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, George. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. We are pleased to welcome Sharon Hoogstratton to Art on the Air. Sharon is a photographer, animator, and graphic designer. She's best known for her portraits of the Potawatomi Indians in regalia and Emmy Award-winning animated openings for television news programs. Her photography books are Dancing for Our Tribe, Potawatomi Tradition in the New Millennium, Green City Market, A Song of Thanks, and Window on the Square. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. It's nice to meet you. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, Sharon, uh, we always like to have our guests tell a little bit about themselves, kind of their thumbnail, their life story. I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So please tell us all about yourself. Well, um, I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I like to say that I am the daughter of a full-blood Dutchman who married a Potawatomi woman. Uh, My mom is from Kansas, um, precisely because of um, Potawatomi uh, removals. She grew up on an allotment farm that has been in our family for generations. And my grandmother, uh, when we were toddlers, was responsible for getting us registered as citizen Potawatomis. So I've grown up knowing that. Um, I didn't really know all about my culture until this more recent uh, legacy project, is what I I like to call it. But in Kalamazoo, um, my dad was a custom home builder, and he built a house for um, Dave Curl, Dr. David Curl, who was the director of the photography program at Western Michigan University. And he took a shine to me and took me under his wing in 4-H and taught me photography. So that was the beginning of... um, 
a long career. Uh, I worked as in publishing uh, for all the companies in Chicago. Um, there's so many here, Scott Forsman, National Geographic, uh, Houghton Mifflin. It was a, a great way to make a living and um, operated at a, a high level of uh, resolution and quality, which I got to take with me into my personal projects. Excellent. Tell us about the work you did at uh, both WLS and then later at WTTW. I think our audience would be interested in that. Yeah, I started out in uh, Chicago. Um, well, I think my first job was making sandwiches at the bank. <laughs> and I was really sad. <laughs> Very unhappy there. And then I ended up working as a, a dye transfer technician, which was interesting because there were basically no women that, that worked in dye transfer. It's, um, you know, big sheets of film. And uh, we got to do some pretty interesting artwork there, but it was also not a place I wanted to stay. And I was working on my master's degree first at um, the Institute of Design uh, at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And to be perfectly honest, I ran out of money. So um, I kind of quit for a while. And then I went to um, the University of Illinois and studied graphic communication, where I got a master's degree in graphic design and uh, worked on animation. So that sort of took me forward. I remember sitting in a, a, at Sears Tower, actually, we were doing a, a graduate um, school uh, show exhibition and talking to a friend and, and with my head in my hands because I was still doing dye transfers and saying I got to get a new job and he said uh, there's an opening at WLS and I'm thinking that's never going to happen but um, I struck gold <laughs> I got a job there I worked there for a few years and then transferred over to WTTW which is our, our PBS um, affiliate WT, uh, WLS was the ABC affiliate and in both places, um, I did animations that were uh, nominated for Emmy Awards. I got three nominations and two wins. So that was really a career highlight. Exciting. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, but after that, uh, I, I took leave and I had two children and I just didn't want to go back to that. So I started producing my own films for children and uh, had some success at that. And then again, the technology changed. So I ended up going back to um, still photography and working and publishing. Take you back to childhood, actually. What was, you talked about how you really learned about the Potawatomi side doing these photographs, but did you spend any time with, um, or so how was the time spent between your two sides of the family? Did you spend much time with your mother's side of the family? Yeah, we went, what was your childhood um, like? We went all the time to Kansas. I was really close to my grandmother and um, I later worked in Kansas City uh, after I graduated um, from my well, Rochester Institute of Technology and got my bachelor's in photography. I, I, uh, I worked for the National Weather Bureau in severe storms um, in Kansas City, which the coolest part of that job was I had an ID that said Space Division, you know. Really <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Other than that, it was, it was pretty dull, too. But it let me also visit my grandmother a lot. And um, she got in a lot of trouble for registering us because, you know, it wasn't exactly a social asset to talk about being Native uh, Native American, um, and her sister, who was a delightful, wonderful woman, was furious with her because she said it's nobody's business that we're Indian. But she put it through, 
And I was probably in second grade the first time we got a per capita payment. And it was like 200 and some dollars. So, you know, four checks for 200 came in in like 1961 or something. I mean, that was a lot of money in those days. Oh, yeah. And my poor Dutch dad, you know, he got nothing. But um, (laughs) my siblings and I, uh, we all got checks. And my mom likes to say that's when everybody started to remember their their Indian blood. (laughs) Um, That was just her point of view, I'm sure. So uh, we we always took, I took pride in it. Um, There wasn't a lot going around me that I understood or participated in. And and I was not involved enough to feel comfortable when I went in 2010 to Oklahoma. I, I had a little imposter syndrome going on and I had to find my way into that community and maybe that's been the most rewarding part of this project is I'm part of many Potawatomi communities now, and um, I really am honored by that. Uh, before we continue on that, I'd like to go back to some of the children's animations that you made. What's the story content that you did with those? I mean, and, and are, are they available to be seen anymore? Actually, I think they are. <laughs> I haven't looked in a while. Um, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, that was really really something and last time I looked it had something like it's just a trailer these are all owned by I don't know I worked for Coronet Films you probably remember those as a kid you know those oh yeah yeah um and then they were bought out by Simon & Schuster so I don't know who owns it now but there's something like 60,000 views on that thing (laughs) um and it was a lot of fun And, and again my grandmother you know she grew up in the sticks right I mean there was they they were very capable people, but there was only so many resources. And when I told her I was doing the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, this one—I mean, I had been working on the film for months, right? And she just rips into the poem, and she knows it from front to back. I mean, she had a mind like a steel trap, and I still couldn't quote it to you. But and we did Continents of the World, the Boyhood of George Washington, the Boyhood of Abraham Lincoln, just things like that. Continents of the World, I think. Um, got some kind of award at the Birmingham Children's Film Festival. and Yeah. And then so, when you branched off on your kind of films, did you do, you said you started to do your own film? I was a producer for those uh, films. I was working as an independent producer for Coronet. Oh, all right. Yeah, they hired me uh, freelance. So uh, getting into still photography, what was the transition to do that? Uh, like, you obviously had the the skills in terms of composition and things like that, but you know, moving into that, what brought you to uh, still photography, equipment-wise and otherwise? Well, I had a, a good friend, a really talented man, um, Don Larson. He had been the design director at WTTW, and he drifted from there into publishing. And, um, you know, I've always worked in large format. I did very little 35-millimeter work. Um, large format, medium format. I use, pen, I'm saying this because I know you like photography, um, Pentaxis and um, Sinar, four by five. So around 2003, uh, I had been working for Houghton Mifflin, uh, McDougal Littell. I mean, they were related companies in Evanston. Um, and they wanted to go digital. And they said, either you go digital or we have to find another photographer. 
And the beauty of the kind of work I was doing is I didn't have to find a day at a time work. These would be long programs. So I'd get two or three months of work um, out of a history project or a math project or whatever, at all levels from, from early childhood to high school. So um, I decided that if I was going to go into digital, I wasn't going to do it. I don't know if you remember what digital was like in 2003. It oh, yeah. <laughs> these strange little cameras that cost a fortune and did nothing. And right in 2003, phase one brought out this amazing back. And um, it's going to cost, it could go right on the back of a Sinar. So that's where I started. It was $36,000. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, in 2003. I'm like, oh, how am I going to do this? And I got lucky because my client was committed to this too. So what they did is they fronted me um, the paycheck for the work I'd be doing. And then I worked like an indentured servant until I paid off. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really a good thing for me because so many other photographers had to really go out on a limb for that. Right. And, and then of course, along the way that technology didn't, even though that was the leading edge, uh, it didn't hold up. So there were two or three, $10,000 upgrades along the way. Um, But in the end I had such an amazing uh, camera set up uh, a Hasselblad with a phase one back. And that's what I took into my personal projects. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. Yeah, and you do any 35 millimeter at all? Yeah, I do. I shoot, uh, I don't shoot uh, Hasselblad out um, when I'm working like at a powwow or something like that. Right. A Nikon. I saw you. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been a Nikon girl, Um, even though I love that big white lens on the Canon. But (laughs) because you really know it's a pro. In fact, when you look at the sideline at uh, sports events, you see almost all white lenses. You know, okay, those are all Canon shooters. Though Sony now is introducing a white white lens too. But yeah, yeah, that's the downside of of Nikon. But um, it's still a lot to carry around, and. I, that's what I've used uh, for um, candid shots. Right, yeah. I know, uh, real quickly, my uh, I, I held on to my film 35mm for a long time, skipped the entire autofocus era in film, and finally bought the first affordable, quote-unquote, full frame in the Canon 5D, which yeah. was like 12.9 uh-huh. megapixels, you know, and I said, okay. And that was like $3,600, which is a hot lot for a 30. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I know. And now I still have a 5D SR, which is a 50 megapixel that I use for uh, wildlife photography and everything. So, Well, you know, I'm going to just um, digress here a second because you know photography. But um, so my Nikon is, um, I mean, it's 2010 now, but it's 24 megapixels. And the Hasselblad with the phase one is only 20 megapixels. Right. And yet... One is CMOS and one is CCD. Right. And if you blow those two up and put them side by side, the Nikon should look better. And it's not close. And that's what you get to see when I do these exhibitions and nearly life-size canvases that um, just the 
the quality of the imagery is completely different from CMOS. And I, I believe even phase one is now abandoning CCD, but... Yeah, I think everyone went to CMOS, and Canon actually, even though Olympus developed it, Canon was the one who pioneered how to use it with a digit processor to make it work. And Because uh, CCD's been along, around for a while, as you know, for video and everything. But also, not all pixels are the same. You can get these little tiny pixels you know, embedded on a little tiny sensor. It still doesn't give you the same kind of resolution versus noise. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I've done bo- both at the same scale and... There's no comparison between the Nikon and the, the Phase One back. Well, let's talk about your work. You know, we'll talk about your exhibit that's coming up locally. But tell us about how you got into recording, what the images are like, uh, the themes that you have involved with the Native American culture, especially Potawatomi. Well, it all started in 2010. Uh, we have a database at uh, Citizen Potawatomi Nation about you know what your career uh, field is and whatnot. And somebody uh, called me up in 2010 to ask if I would bring artwork down for a family reunion festival uh, because he saw that I was a photographer and, um, and they were building this um, art side to the festival. And I said, well, I don't really have anything I want to bring down, but what if we start something new? And that, of course, had to go through um, proper channels and get approval. And so uh, that would have been June of 2010. I packed up my whole studio and in my car and drove it down to Oklahoma, kind of freaking out. Um, And I had no idea that it would be anything other than a one-off event. And um, the next year they invited me back and said, well, why not be more for a show? And then it just kept growing. And then I wanted to, uh, as the Potawatomi's got moved around, they kind of became disjointed. There's nine separate Potawatomi nations in Canada, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Kansas, and Oklahoma, all because of treaties. But um, I wanted to cover uh, all the Potawatomis and look at what happened to woodland uh, regalia that for people who got to stay in the woodlands and how it changed, how regalia changed to accommodate the weather and whatnot in Kansas and Oklahoma. So that was kind of the scholarly thing that made me want to spread it out. But then I just got so involved in, in including all our communities that it grew into this dozen-year project. So interesting because, you know, the emotion and delicacy of your photographs, they're, they're very moving. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you approach these varied um, situations or environments that you work in both in the studio and on site and how because you have to achieve that sort of balance between your experience and spontaneity mm-hmm. and so um you know how do you approach it because you're sometimes meeting everybody for the first time well i'm really gratified that you noticed that because regalia is fascinating on its own right i mean it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of blame i mean it's great but of late I've compared some of my work to other people's work and I've been schooling myself to point out that these are really soulful people, 
so so be- such beautiful people, right? And they're just ordinary folks, teachers, whatever. I don't um, children. Coach them. <laughs> so beautiful. Children. And also, I never turned anybody down who came to the set. I didn't go out there and just pick out the pretty ones or the regalia that um, I like. Because some regalia that's most moving is very simple, right? Yes. Just, but more and more, I've been asking people not just to to view the regalia, but to look at those faces because I think they're incredibly soulful too. And that's hardly got anything to do with me. But what we did, what the approach was, is we would play um, CDs uh, from, you know, like Powell CDs and uh, just let them forget about me. The whole studio's shut up, set up. We just watch and catch it as they go. And they would just disappear into themselves. And um, it was just my job to pay attention and keep my mouth shut. Yeah, it's kind of hard when you do have, because we play a lot of those CDs from the various powwows of the drum, you know, whoever is the featured, you know, drum music has their CD and it's, you do get so lost in that music. Yeah, it's, it's funny when you're approaching um, a powwow, you don't have to be Potawatomi, but you start hearing that heartbeat mm-hmm. and you're like, want to get away from your car and, and get to where it's happening and you get really like anxious to get there. And it speaks to everybody, you know, there's a reason that it sounds the way it sounds. Did you draw any comparison or inspiration from Edward Curtis, who's, you know, noted for his uh, Western and Native American photography over the years? You know, it's, of course, mostly all black and white, but. uh... Yeah, when I think about Edward Curtis, you know, he's controversial. There are a lot of criticisms of him. Um, One of the things I say about all of those photographers, uh, Edward Curtis and, and another favorite, Frank Reinhart, whose collection is at the Haskell Indian University, is whatever you think about the photographer, these are ancestors, and they're invaluable just for that reason alone. But what I also like to say about those two is they were shooting in a nostalgic, sepia-toned way. They were shooting at the front edge of their technology, right? right? If they could have shot in color on a digital camera, that's what they would do. So that's why I feel my obligation for showing us in our time is that I must do the same. A lot of photographers are doing beautiful work right now, kind of emulating them. I wanted to strip it back the way they did, but to use our technology, the front edge of our technology, because 100 years from now, that's going to mean something. Sure. It's so true because the colors, I mean, the colors and and the textures just really shine through. And it is right now. This is what you're looking at. Yeah. And even the, um, you know, we like that stoic look, right? But a lot of that was about these long exposures. So it's easier to hold a stoic expression than to be laughing or smiling. So I don't shy away from those in my work. If that's what's happening um, we have the technology and the speed to do that now. Well, Sharon, we're about a minute and a half away from uh, where we're going to be. Why don't you tell us about the exhibit that you have coming up at the depot, uh, information about that, and what people can expect to see? Well, I think we're go- going to be hanging the almost life-size canvases. Um, I printed these myself, and um, it gives you a chance to really peer into these images in a way that you can't in a smaller print or in a book. Um, I love the book because it will last 100 years and the show will last a month. 
Um, but I hope people can come just to really kind of experience it on almost a one-by-one, um, one-to-one um, one -one basis. And we're also going to have um, some things there that are about regalia, um, some, I don't want to say artifacts because that kind of harks back and they're all very current, but a, a lot to see um, besides the, the prints and and the book will be available. Of course, I should mention that. Oh, sure. <laughs> and that's going to be on August 11th, Friday at the Depot, which is at Broadway and US 12 in Beverly Shores. And you'll be making a presentation on Saturday, August 12th at the Michigan City Library from 2 to 4 p.m. Well, Sharon, we appreciate you coming on the show, explaining your uh, indigenous photography that's important. Sharon Hoekstraten, thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air. Yeah, it's delightful. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it. We'd like to thank our guest this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And for WVLP, Walt Brettinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry.